Have your Bibles turned to uh, Romans chapter 13. We're continuing uh, this uh, series through Romans 13. Last week, we did some heavy lifting with uh, verses 1 through 7. And uh, this week, uh, it is so timely uh, that we uh, look at verses 8 through 10. It is interesting. I was talking with one of my pastor friends yesterday. It's interesting how God orchestrates certain passages. If you plan your sermon series out over an extended period of time, how that so often God uh, pinpoints the passage that you need to preach uh, to his people uh, even before you know the circumstances that will happen before you preach this text. If you consider the things that we have seen over these last several days and you consider uh, the, uh, the genuine concerns and fears and anxieties and struggles that people are encountering today. When we consider the other per- person, the, the person in whose shoes we're not walking, but when we look at the life that they have to live, filled with doubt sometimes, filled with fear, I, I never imagined uh, and have never had the opportunity or the need to talk to any of my girls about uh, uh, the proper behavior with police officers. Uh, they know that they are to respect the police officers, but my children don't fear police officers. They fear the ticket that the police officer would give, and then their mother as do I, having to report uh, getting a ticket. Uh, And last week, it seems to be a running theme over the last three weeks, but last week I reported that God convicted me through the words of my wife, stop speeding. And uh, I've done, just to report, I've done a pretty poor job of that. Let me confess. No, I've done pretty well. Uh, Now, uh, speeding would be any miles over the speed limit, right? Not just five. I mean, I figure if you're... No. Anyway, I've struggled with that. But I've never had to have a conversation with my children about about the police like some of my friends uh, of a different race have had to talk to their children. There's genuine concern. Now, you might not understand it. You might not even agree with it. But until you walk in the shoes of our brothers and sisters who have had to face it, their lives. We shouldn't stand in judgment. On the other hand, let's call out terroristic kind of behavior that brings violence upon men and women in uniform who are simply trying to protect and to serve. And out of some insane anger, decide that the way they're going to voice their anger is by shooting people. Neither is that the appropriate response. I don't have any of the answers. I don't even know some of the questions that need to be asked about what's happened this week. But I do know that the Bible gives us clear direction. The Bible gives us clear direction as to how you and I are supposed to behave. And there's no, there's no zero excuse for any other behavior as a follower of Jesus. 
Last week, we looked at how the gospel informs our relationship with government. Today, we see that the gospel shows us how we are to relate to other people. It teaches us and shows us and calls us to relate to other people in a particular way. And and if you look in Romans 13, beginning in verse 8, just look again at these words that Paul writes. He says, Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, they're all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. As we look at this passage, let's understand how Paul has framed his argument. He begins by talking about a debt we don't owe and a debt we do owe. In in, in fact, what Paul does, he says, owe no one anything. That's not a financial advice. He's not trying to give financial advice He's saying that if you're in debt, pay off your debt. I mean, he's not saying be debt-free, although debt-free is a good, uh, a good position to take that, you know, Edie and I, we're committed to being debt-free sometime. <laughs> Paid tuition for my third daughter in college yesterday. That's three. So we're committed to at some point in time being debt-free. <laughs> some point in time. Somewhere down the line. But the, the admonition here is not anything about money. It's about love. Guys, as followers of Jesus, understand that the gospel demands that we have an unending debt of love that we owe to other people. We owe an unending debt of love to others. And that's Paul's point, and he makes it very clearly, and he backs it up in verse 10. He sandwiched his statement, and this is the big picture theme, that the gospel that, that, that we have embraced as followers of Jesus, the gospel, the good news, that God in his great grace sent Jesus to die for sinners like me on a cross, to rescue me from my sins, guilt, and shame, to set me on a path of new life for God's glory, but, but it's for my good. And, and this is the gospel that Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin on my behalf so that I might experience the righteousness and the justice of God in my own life through him. It is a beautiful picture of a transaction of God's grace that has taken place in my life. And if indeed you're a follower of Jesus in your life, the gospel's changed you. It's not just a set of ideals that you follow. It is a life-changing truth that is shaping your heart and life today. And it affects how we relate to other people. Now, what the gospel has done, it it has put on us a responsibility that never ends. And that responsibility is to love others. Owe no one anything except to love one another. 
to love one another. And this is the command. Love one another is not something that we just haphazardly uh, move into. It's not some syrupy sentiment that we take hold of. To love others means that we love others the way Jesus has loved us. And that means that as Jesus stepped into the skin of a man. So that he might pay the debt of sin that humanity owed. We must step in the circumstance, in the context of other people and see them through the lens of love, not the lens of our own preconceptions, not the lens of our own prejudice, not the lens of, of our own fearfulness. We must look at people the way Jesus looked at us. It's a realistic look. Jesus saw us, he saw a sinner in need of rescue. When Jesus saw the, well, uh, the woman at the well of Sychar in John chapter 4, he saw a woman who had lived a crazy chaotic life out of bounds of what God required. When Jesus saw Nicodemus at night, he saw a religious man who was trying to fulfill moral obligations, and yet he was as empty as the woman at the well of Sychar. When he saw Matthew, he saw a tax collector who had abandoned his own people to receive taxes and to get money, but he also saw a man who could be used for God's glory on mission for God and called Matthew to be one of his disciples. When he saw Zacchaeus, he saw another tax collector who was uh, rich beyond measure, who had defrauded people over and over and over again. And yet Jesus looked at Zacchaeus and said, I need to spend some time with you. And, and, And Jesus saw a man whose life could be changed by God's grace. When Jesus saw you, when Jesus saw me, he saw someone sinful, hostile toward God, alienated from God, and yet Jesus determined to love us in spite of our ugliness. And Jesus determined to love us not with just a sentiment of words, but with a life-giving sacrifice. Now, friends, here's the key for you and me. We are to love. We are to love We are to love the other. The other. That's the person that lives in our home and is part of our family. That's the person that sits beside us in our seat, in our life group, or here in this worship gathering, part of our church. And that's the person that we see on the street holding a sign begging for food. It's the person we see in the market in need of help and hope. It's the person that we encounter on the highway, obviously belligerent and mad by the way they're driving. We are called to love the other. And it's not just something we can optionally do. But rather, it's the debt, the unending debt that we owe them. Guys, you don't get to opt out of loving others the way Christ has loved you. We don't get to say, I'm going to take a pass on this one. This one's going to be a little hard for me. 
I can't love that person. If you say at any point, I can't love that person, understand you are saying it in direct contradiction to what the gospel has done in your life. In direct contradiction to what Jesus has done for you. Yes, love the other. Well, what about the person that's mad at me? What about the person that's mean to me? What about the person that despises me? What about the person that doesn't look like me or act like me or think like me? Yes, we are to love them with the same passion, the same purpose, the same persistence, the same sacrifice with which Jesus has loved us. We owe a debt of love to the other. And I I just want to kind of highlight the language of the text in verse 8 is very clear. It's not uh, just a a transaction that we, it's not a voluntary payment. It's not not a charitable organization to which we can say, I'm going to give or I'm not going to give. No, this is a debt that we must pay according to Scripture. How does the gospel shape your life? Friends, if it doesn't shape it to love others the way Christ has loved you, then it is not shaping your life. We spend too much time listening to people on TV tell us how we're supposed to behave and act and think during this time. We spend too much time shaping our worldview from people on TV that are really trying to promote their own agenda in some way. We spend too much time listening to the voices of our friends or our neighbors or our heritage or our past. And we spend far too little time listening to the Word of God speak to us, the church. We are to love sacrificially, beyond the bounds. Do you realize that Jesus loved in a racially divided culture and he loved all? Not just with his words, but supremely through his action. Friends, yes, It's a scary time, and there are scary people, but we are called to love. And there is no excuse not to. Now, I grieve for my black friends. I do. I don't understand what you're going through. I don't understand the fears that you have. I don't understand your concerns. I I try to understand, but it would be arrogant of me to say that I know what's happening for you, inside of you. But I don't have to understand in order to stand with you. I don't have to understand to take your hand and walk with you. I don't have to understand everything that you're going through 
All I have to understand is God has called me to love you from the depths of my heart. Not just with my words, but with my life. And if at any point this church is on the wrong side of love and justice, then God will remove his hand from us. Make no mistake. We're called to love. I hope it goes without saying that we're called to love each other in this family of faith. Unloving words, unloving actions are just unacceptable. We'll get to more of that in a minute. So Paul says we owe an unending debt. By the way, unending is the picture of of the Greek language in that first verse. It's an unending debt. It's a debt that doesn't go away. It doesn't dissipate. It doesn't disappear. We are always called to love with the same fervor and the same passion. And if you can't do it, the problem is not the object of your your love. The problem is you. Today, we're called to love. We owe an unending debt of love to others. And Paul begins to uh, show why we do, and he simply says that uh, our love for others fulfills God's law. And and that's a beautiful thing for us to understand, that that loving others truly fulfills God's law. It's it's what Paul is pointing at, second part of verse 8. He he writes, he says, uh, For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. Then he gives the second tablet of the Ten Commandments. And and he says, and then any other commandment, verse 9, he says, all of these commandments are summed up in this saying. Namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The obligation is clear. We are to love the other. But the beautiful thing is when we love others, we are doing what the law requires. Love is not contrary to God's commands, but rather, love is doing what God commands. I don't want to belabor this too much, but friends, we spend so much time looking at all these jots and tittles of Scripture and and, and thinking about uh, this this little... trickle of truth over here and this little trickle of truth over here and 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 what we miss is the river of truth that God's called us to flow with and that is to love the other I don't know if you are captured by this the way I've been captured by this I look at how I have failed to love and it breaks my heart how I failed to love those closest to me and how I failed to love those in my family and how I failed to love those in my church and and how I failed to love those in my community. I look and I see how inconsistent I have been 
in loving others. I hide it behind the mask of, well, I'm doing A or B or C or D, and those are things that God wants me to do. But the truth is, if I'm not loving well, am I really doing what God commands? And the answer is no. Can I ask you, now, by the way, now I've just done a, 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 a speaking communication technique. I've put myself on the pillar to be whipped. To invite you to join me here. Because I'm firm in my conviction because I've seen it in your actions. That like me, you too have failed to love. Now, I can't own yours. I can only own mine. But God help me if I don't listen to this passage of Scripture and repent of my sin again. And experience a powerful, rejuvenating work of the Spirit in me so that I would love well. May my heart be broken at each instant that I fail to love the other the way Jesus has loved me. And my prayer for you is that your heart would be broken at every instant, with every attitude, with every word you say that is unloving that you would be broken by your own sinfulness as well this is what doing God's will looks like he says that you love your neighbor as yourself can I stop us for a second and talk again about our neighbor who then is our neighbor who indeed is our neighbor is it is it the person that is in my cul-de-sac that li- lives to my left and to my right do I expand that that uh, that that to my whole uh, 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 neighborhood community that uh, the people I pay the bill to uh, whatever that's the yeah, homeowners associate is it all of them is it it that just irritates me every time I pay that bill anyway but I love those people. We got a, it's different and don't have time for it, but I'm going to take some time. We got a thing in the mail. Was it yesterday, honey? We got a thing in the mail yesterday that said we need to do something because we got some peeling paint. Oh, that irritates me so badly. And it's true. We signed a document that said we can't have any peeling paint. And it's true. There is about a foot of peeling paint on my, uh, uh, the door thingy. But they had to come looking for that. I said, honey, I talked to Edie. I said, honey, do you think they were looking? Do, I mean, somebody had to come up to our door and look for that. She said, that's what they do. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Can you imagine that job? 
What kind of life would that be? That kind of life where you're always looking for the peeling paint on somebody else's home. I'm about to turn it. So often as neighbors, we look at the peeling paint in somebody else's life and we critique it. We're quick to judge what they've got going on in their world and to complain about them and talk about their peeling paint. When in reality, our response shouldn't be to look for the peeling paint in their life, but look for ways for us to love them. Are you looking for ways to love your neighbor? Who then is my neighbor? Is it the the community? Yes. The people here in this church? Yes. If I live in Chesapeake, is it the people in Norfolk or Virginia Beach or Suffolk or, or Portsmouth? Yes. If I live in, on the East Coast, is it the people uh, on the West Coast? Yes. Is it the people in the Midwest? Yes. Is it the people in the Deep South? Yes. Is it the people in Canada? Yes. The people in Mexico? Yes. The people in South America? Yes. Our neighbor, according to the teaching of Jesus, is the person who is in need. Jesus was asked by an attorney, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And in Luke 10, it says that the the lawyer seeking to justify himself asked, who then is my neighbor? And Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan. You know the story of the Good Samaritan. The story of the Good Samaritan is this man was going up to Jericho in one of the mountain passes, he fell among thieves. The thieves came down, beat him up, left him for dead. Religious people passed by this man who was beaten and dying on the side of the road, and they did nothing. They might have said, love you, brother, praying for you, brother. But they did nothing to help the man who was dying. But a Samaritan passes by, and the Samaritan stops And without any neat little platitudes or religious words or phrases, he bandaged the wounds of the man who was broken. And he put him on his his mule and he took him to a, a, a hospital, to the emergency room, and he paid that broken man's bill. And he promised if, there, if the bill comes due and there's any more to pay, that Samaritan said, I'll pay it. I'll take care of it. Now, Jesus said, who then was neighbor to the man who had fallen among thieves? And, and the lawyer uh, turned and sadly said, the one who had helped. When we consider our neighbor, we need to consider not the people who are just like us, not the people who look like us, not the people who have our skin color, not the people who wear our uniforms, not, not merely the people who are in our homes or in our churches or in our neighborhoods. We need to think of every person, those who are in need. This is what fulfills God's law, to love our neighbor. Do you show that kind of love? Are you showing that kind of love? Paul emphasizes the the point of the passage one more time when he says that love does no harm to our neighbor. You know, I think this is 
It's a negative way to say it, and, and, and I, 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 I usually like to say the positive, but I think Paul's point was, let me tell you what love does, not just what love says. Love does no harm to the neighbor, said positively, love does good for others. So here we have this statement in verse 10 that love does no harm for, uh, to the neighbor. Therefore, it is the fulfillment of the law. It does good, and it does not do harm. It does. Can I read you a quote that I found this week as I was studying? And I rarely read you quotes from, uh, from, from books and such, but I wanted to read this. This is from a guy named C.E.B. Cranfield. And he wrote a commentary on the book of Romans. And this is what he said about verse 10. I want you to listen. I want you to listen closely. He writes, how often is Christian love brought into disrepute because those who are loud in their praise of love and those who are confident that they themselves are loving persist in injuring their neighbors. simply said, it is preaching love without living love. It's saying, I believe in love. I love love. We as followers of Jesus need to love, except when it comes to that person right there. Not you, Stan. I was pointing at Frank behind you. Not, not, we, we, we love love, and we love to praise love, and we love to talk about love, and we talk a good game as followers of Jesus. But, but here's what Cranfield said, and I think this is what Paul's point is, that, that we talk a good game, but our life doesn't show it when we are caught in a place where we encounter someone that maybe in our heart of hearts we haven't considered too loving or too lovable. And it's in that moment that we as followers of Jesus need to rise up beyond our normal human nature and live in that supernatural nature that Jesus has given us by his spirit and love those who despise us, love those who have been hateful to us, love those who don't like us very much, love those who aren't like us, love those who who believe differently from us. Love, yes, love. Now, love must be the kind of love that Jesus had. It's not love devoid of truth. It's not love as a sentiment or a syrupy kind of emotion. Love is an action that is sacrificial to point people to the only God who can rescue them from their plight. We live in a day in a culture where we hold grudges better than anybody. And as followers of Jesus, if that's who you are, please understand you are sinning against God and his law of love. We live in a culture and a time where we are so easily offended, and I understand that.
But if we are so easily offended that we fail to fulfill the law that God has given us, which is to love our neighbor as ourselves, then the, the sin is on us, not the one who has offended us. In some ways, this is Christianity 101. It's the simplest truth. It's not like we're trying to figure out the Trinity here. But in some ways, this is Christianity 401. It's advanced. And we never stop learning to love others the way Jesus has loved us. And friends... Today, at this time, as much as in any other time, the church must live a life of love. Just as God has loved us and he gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Will you commit to live a life of love? Start today. Start now. Let's pray. I want to ask you, with your heads bowed, your eyes closed, not as as uh, one who has all the answers, but simply as one who is on the journey with you, with your hearts turned toward the Lord right now, will you ask God, O God, am I loving others the way the gospel demands? Are you setting the example that is honoring to Jesus with your words, with your attitude, with your love. See, now's now's not the time for us to just go to our corners and be mad at each other. Now's the time for us to demonstrate why Jesus makes us different. Will you commit yourself to love? It's not just any old kind of love. It is a love that is within the framework of God's will. It's a love that points people to who God is. It's a love that is sacrificial in service. It's a love that is active, not just verbal. Will you love the way Jesus has loved you? That's what the gospel demands. To love others without exception. Thus, fulfilling the law of God. Oh God, right now, will you help us to love others the way you've loved us to love with sympathy and empathy with concern to weep with our friends and our neighbors who are weeping to rejoice with those who are rejoicing to 
to hurt with them, along with them, to stand beside them, to help them in their need, to embrace them, to strengthen them. God, help us to love. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. These next few moments we're going to stand and we're going to sing a song of worship, I Surrender All, because that's really what it takes for us to love others the way Jesus has loved us. We have to surrender all that we are to him. We have to let go our pride. We have to let go our, our, our own ego, and we have to commit ourselves to be like Jesus. So as we stand and sing, I invite you to just commit yourself to surrender your all to him. This altar is going to be open for you to come and pray, and there are going to be ministers here at the front if you need someone to talk with. But will you commit yourself to love others? That's what the gospel demands. And that's what Jesus has shown us.